over three centuries, a steady stream of men, women, and children followed the beacon of liberty which this light symbolizes. They brought to us strength and moral fiber, developed in a civilization centuries old, but fired anew by the dream of a better life in America. They brought to one new country the cultures of a hundred old ones. This recording of Franklin Delano Roosevelt commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Statue of Liberty in 1936 is one of the earliest you can find of a U.S. president talking about the country as a melting pot of people from all over the world blending to form one culture. The speech was not just about the statue and the idea it represents, but also about Ellis Island, Liberty's closest neighbor. Looking down this great harbor, I like to think of the countless number of inbound vessels that have made the port. I like to think of the men, men and women who, with the break of dawn off Sandy Hook, have strained their eyes to the west for a first glimpse of the new world. While most of it resembled the boilerplate American dream rhetoric of today, FDR's speech was talking about immigration as if it were a thing of the past, the foundation for the modern American nation, but no longer an integral part of its future. Within this present generation, that stream from abroad has largely stopped. We have within our shores today the materials out of which we shall continue to build an even better home for liberty. They say more than a hundred million Americans today have an ancestor who passed through Ellis Island. When immigration debates divide the country, and some argue that immigrants bring nothing but trouble, Ellis Island is invoked as one of many reminders that the vast majority of us came from somewhere else. What's easy to forget is that by 1936, Ellis Island had come to play a larger role in keeping migrants out than welcoming them in. And while exclusionary practices were nothing new, the number of migrants being excluded and deported from the U.S. had reached unprecedented levels. One such person was a man named Leon, a Jewish immigrant from Istanbul, who had sat for a deportation hearing at Ellis Island in the shadow of liberty just a few weeks before FDR's speech. Immigration and naturalization services would order him sent back to Turkey. Another was Lefki, who was displaced by the destruction of her home region of Izmir. She was already awaiting deportation to Greece, her hearing at Ellis Island having occurred a year prior. By the end of 1936, Toma, a young Assyrian man from Diyarbakir, would also have his hearing there after a large human smuggling network from Cuba was discovered by U.S. authorities. None of these people had entered the country with proper documentation. Documentation that a few years prior would have never been needed in the first place. And none was guilty of any other crime. Rather than a new beginning, Ellis Island seemed for them the end of the American dream. Such hearings weren't only taking place at Ellis Island. Deportation was everywhere. It was happening in the growing cities of the Midwest, like Gary, Indiana, where a Muslim man named Hassan, from modern-day Lebanon, first met the beginning of the end of his American dream. It was in the prisons, like the federal penitentiary in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where a man who went by Frank Johnson would attempt one last con by obscuring his origins to find a way out of expulsion. It was even in psychiatric hospitals, where a Turkish dentist named Akif and an Armenian refugee named Abram 
both faced deportation because they were supposedly burdens on the cash-strapped American state. Back at Ellis Island, officials were doing a lot more to grease the wheels of expulsion than merely interrogating undesirable immigrants. They were corresponding with foreign governments and consulates to secure passports for deportees like John and Harry from the Dodecanese Islands. They were tracking down paperwork and arrival information for people like Tommy, a Macedonian migrant authorities worked to remove after a bust on his wife's brothel. He was just one of many potential Greek nationals who kept immigration officers and diplomats busy. They were so numerous that the U.S. diplomatic archives contain a separate collection with nothing but deportation case files pertaining to Greece during the late 30s. The people I've just mentioned were drops in a sea of migrants who washed up on American shores. They had come from different places, spoke different languages, practiced different religions, and they shared little more than what they shared with the countless other people subject to deportation over those years. But they had one other thing in common. Just like hundreds of other Americans of the period, they were all born in the Ottoman Empire. Yet by 1936, the Ottoman Empire had been dead and gone for more than a decade. These people didn't have much connection to the post-Ottoman world anymore. And that's one reason why their deportation cases are so fascinating and meaningful for us today. Because the idea of deporting them was so impossible, even ludicrous. And yet, that's precisely what the American government would attempt to do. Using records of legal proceedings, diplomatic correspondence from the state archives, and interviews with scholars of migration history, this podcast series brings each of these stories to light. This podcast explores how the unmaking of an empire became intertwined with the making of a modern nation. It tells the tales of people told to go back to a country that no longer existed. This is Deporting Ottoman Americans. gentlemen in the academic world, it sounds to me as if you hadn't uh, really had the contact with the 90% of the people of this country and of all other countries who have the struggle. Our unemployment problem was transferred to the United States. The individual must be a servant of the collective order in any way. We expect people who live in this country to play by the rules. I favor rigidly restricted immigration. But the ruling principle must not be that a man free. We know that the state is nothing but the organization of power in the hands of the dominant economic class. Social order, you ignore racial differences. You cannot have order with everybody talking at once. Our nation is the enduring dream of every immigrant who ever set foot on these shores. And we are most generous in our treatment of the aliens. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. To the 16,500,000 foreign born in our midst, there would be no serious unemployment problem to harass us. Welcome to the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast. I'm your host, Chris Grayton. In each episode, I'll be following the story of people who were born in the Ottoman Empire, came to the U.S., and for different reasons were ordered to be deported during the 1930s. Because the Ottoman Empire collapsed after its defeat in the First World War, it was not clear where such people should be deported. As a result, 
Their legal cases were also diplomatic cases that sometimes involved years of correspondence with foreign governments. By reconstructing these stories, we'll not only figure out what happened to the migrants who fell through the cracks of the fractured geopolitical landscape of the Middle East, we'll also learn a lot about the history of migration, race, gender, and class in the U.S., and the development of international law. Through the story of deporting Ottoman Americans, we'll understand how America's modern immigration regime and the modern state itself took shape. Now in this introductory episode, we're going to cover a lot of ground and we're going to move fast, so please consult the table of contents in the blog or on the SoundCloud page if you need to skip or return to sections. I'm going to set the stage for our migrant stories by discussing Ottoman immigration to the U.S. before the First World War in order to provide context for why such immigrants came to be deported in growing numbers after the war. We'll talk about the anti-immigrant turn in U.S. history and the creation of immigration quotas that limited migration from places like the former Ottoman Empire. After that, we'll highlight the centrality of what we'll call the deportation state in this dynamic. Then we'll peer deeper into the history of anti-immigrant sentiment in the U.S. and the role of race and eugenics in immigration policy. And I'll conclude by explaining how migrants born in the Ottoman Empire became caught up in this very American story in unusual ways due to the political transformations that were occurring back home and the rise of nationality as a meaningful form of identification. Let's go ahead and cover some familiar territory for those who have followed the Ottoman History Podcast over the past seven years. During the 19th century, a tri-continental empire that ruled over Eastern Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa was in a period of political transformation and fragmentation. The Ottoman Empire had once been arguably the strongest player within the European state system. We get the word Ottoman from the name of the founder of the Ottoman dynasty, Osman I. The Ottomans had risen to dominance over the course of the 15th century, and by the middle of the 16th century, the empire ruled the Balkans and parts of Eastern Europe, as well as Anatolia and most of the Middle East and North Africa. Morocco and Iran were never part of the Ottoman Empire. Everything in between was. And at their height, the Ottomans ruled over not only Greece, Bulgaria, and most of the Balkan countries, but also Hungary, marching all the way to the gates of Vienna several times. By the late 18th century, economic and political crisis coupled with frequent wars began to upend this. Russia expanded at the expense of the Ottomans on the shores of the Black Sea in Crimea and the Caucasus, and the Austro-Hungarian Empire would later do the same in Eastern Europe. Portions of the empire in the Balkans sought to break away as independent nations and succeeded, often backed by European allies. The first was Greece in 1832, followed by others such as Serbia and Bulgaria, European colonialism also encroached on the Ottoman Empire in North Africa. France took Algeria and Tunisia, the British established a protectorate in Egypt, and Italy eventually took Libya. But the Ottoman Empire continued to weather these crises, building its modern state apparatus and military in a constant effort to consolidate rule and prevent further losses. Predominantly Muslim regions of the empire, namely Anatolia and the Arab provinces of the Middle East, remained in Ottoman hands to the very end. It was during this period that Ottoman subjects began to imagine a new relationship with the state. It wasn't just a distant empire anymore. It was an ever-present bureaucracy. And with the rise of the press, new understandings of citizenship, and the emergence of constitutionalism and representative government, the descriptor Ottoman itself became more than just the name of a dynasty and its governors. 
It was a label that transcended ethno-religious boundaries to apply to every citizen. In the course of these conflicts and rapid transformations, there were tremendous movements of people. Millions of Muslims, referred to as muhajirs, who were expelled during or fleeing the aforementioned wars, entered the Ottoman Empire and settled throughout the remaining territory. All were made Ottoman subjects and citizens. That's right, the late Ottoman Empire was in some sense also a nation of immigrants, but maybe that's a matter for another podcast. Meanwhile, another mass exodus was taking shape. As steamship lines and railways began to connect the Ottoman domains and offer outlets to the rest of the world, Ottoman subjects, for both political and economic reasons, began to migrate to the Americas. Most were non-Muslims, but some Ottoman Muslims migrated abroad as well, usually coming from the same regions where non-Muslim migration was common. Early migrants wrote back or returned with money and promises of opportunity, both real and imagined, and during the 1890s, the numbers of Ottoman emigres began to climb. During the years immediately prior to the First World War, they grew even more rapidly. Ottoman migrants represented a small percentage of the total immigrants in the U.S. during this period. A few hundred thousand people migrated from the Ottoman Empire to the United States during the late 19th and early 20th century. Possibly the largest group of Ottomans who came to the U.S. was Syrians, broadly defined here as the inhabitants of Lebanon, Syria, and Palestine, a geography that historians refer to as Greater Syria or Bilad Sham. About 100,000 came to the U.S. before the First World War. By 1924, there were an estimated 200,000 Syrian Americans, counting their children. They were mostly Christians from Mount Lebanon, and there was a sizable Muslim minority. Almost all spoke Arabic. Another important Ottoman-American group was the Sephardic community, i.e. primarily Ladino-speaking Jews from the Ottoman Empire in Greece. 50 to 60,000 is a rough estimate of their numbers, so they were only a portion of the Jewish-American population that numbered more than 2 million by 1924. Greek Orthodox Christians were another major immigrant group, numbering hundreds of thousands, with most coming from independent Greece. A substantial subset of the Greek-American population came from still Ottoman territories in the Balkans and Anatolia. While they would later be counted as Greek nationals, Bulgarians or Macedonians, that is Slavic-speaking Christians as well as Albanians, were also in this mix. Finally, some 60,000 Armenian Christians from Anatolia migrated to the United States before the war. Alongside them were smaller numbers of Assyrian Christians and Kurdish Muslims who hailed from the same regions. America, as an idea, became central to the communities who came to the U.S. in large numbers. For Arab migrants, especially Lebanese Christians, America was the primary place of migration, at least before 1924. Their word for the concept was Mahjar. As the work of Akram Khater has shown, the experience of the Mahjar began to change Lebanese society both at home and abroad. In the U.S., Lebanese families encountered new conditions, Lebanese women became involved in new forms of labor, and middle-class sensibilities surrounding the new environment were also transferred back to Lebanon via return migrants and families who kept one foot on both sides of the Atlantic. The story of Greek migrants from the Mediterranean region is similar. Joanna Laliotu refers to Greeks during the 20th century as transatlantic subjects on account of the large role played by outmigration and return migration in Greek history. America became integral to the lives of Greeks both conceptually and economically. For Armenians, America was not just a land of opportunity, but also a place of escape.
Armenian immigration began to rise during the 1890s when their local communities in parts of eastern Anatolia were shaken by massacres, rebellions, and political strife. Although the economic motives for Armenian migration were also powerful, the desire for political survival was equally vital to their story. Ottoman immigrants weren't concentrated in one area per se. They established roots throughout the United States. Sephardic Jews maintained their distinctive identities in the places where they settled in the U.S. from New York to Seattle. And as we'll discuss in a later episode, those who came from the Ottoman Empire sometimes identified as Turkinos, referring to their specific origins in Turkey. Often these movements involved mass simultaneous migration from one place to another, as if entire villages picked up and moved in a matter of years. For example, the small Harput region of eastern Anatolia sent a substantial portion of the overall Armenian migrant population to the Americas, and a major percentage of those migrants made their way out west to settle in Fresno, California, a city and agricultural region largely built by Armenian immigrants, of whom a quarter or more were from Harput alone. To some extent, migrants maintained their communal identities. In New York City, there was even a neighborhood called Little Syria, once a major center of Arab-American life in Lower Manhattan. This was a place where Syrian migrants could find most of the essentials of life back home and even read newspapers in their native language. Yet the Little Syria model was not the dominant Ottoman immigrant experience. Because Ottoman migrants traveled everywhere and became part of local society, whether the Greeks who opened diners throughout the Northeast or the Syrians who worked as peddlers and opened shops in the Midwest. From the rural South to the industrial cities of the Great Lakes, basically anywhere where America was growing, Ottomans were going. Throughout the series, we'll be discovering more about the vibrant socioeconomic life of the Ottoman American diaspora. And as is the case for other immigrant groups in US history, there are many books that explore how such groups came to the US and became part of American society. However, the stories of successful immigrants comprise only one dimension of the overall picture. As immigrants continued to flock to America by the millions, America would begin to close its doors. And as a result, the history of the Ottoman American diaspora came to include not just those who became American, but also those who were excluded along the way. was transferred to the United States from foreign lands. And if we had refused admission to the 16,500,000 foreign-born in our midst, there would be no serious unemployment problem to harass us. You just heard Martin Dyes Jr., a Democratic congressman from Texas, speaking in 1935. In addition to airing the anti-immigrant statements you just heard, he led the committee to investigate un-American activities, which targeted alleged communists throughout the period right before and during World War II. The suggestion that America should have never let in any immigrants doesn't sit well with the idea of a nation of immigrants that has defined the past decades of the national discourse. But Dyes represented a mainstream view in a time during which government policy had been aimed at stemming the flow of migrants for almost two decades. And although much has changed and changed again since, the fundamental structures of the immigration system created during that period have endured. While immigration to the U.S. had been mostly unlimited during the period before the First World War, restrictions on immigration did not emerge entirely overnight. 
The U.S. passed laws over the course of the late 19th and early 20th century that began to establish theoretical boundaries for the nation. The earliest immigration restrictions were against Chinese migrants, specifically laborers, barred from the U.S. with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. Enya Lubid has also demonstrated that these early restrictions were bound up with concerns about prostitution and social anxieties about sexual morality, especially the sexuality of women. Despite new immigration laws, the borders themselves remained fairly open, and enforcing restrictions was difficult. One enforcement of immigration that existed occurred mostly at points of entry. Once you were in, for the most part, you were in. The categorical shift began with the First World War. The U.S. had been neutral, but it eventually entered the war in 1917. That same year, under the administration of Woodrow Wilson, it passed an immigration act aimed at protecting the country from unwanted migrants partially in anticipation of a post-war influx of refugees. That act is also known as the Asiatic Barred Zone Act. It prevented the entry of people from, quote, any country not owned by the U.S. adjacent to the continent of Asia. Adjacent is the operative word that introduced ambiguity into the law. It wasn't only about fear of East Asians like Chinese workers banned from the U.S. during the 1880s or South Asians barred from the U.S. during the early 20th century or the anticipated post-war Japanese migrant influx. The law was also about the place where Europe and Asia blurred. Eastern European borderlands of the newly formed Soviet Union, Southern Europe, and the Middle Eastern lands of the soon-to-be former Ottoman Empire. In addition, the law included a clause containing a literacy requirement for migrants. During that period, most people in the world could not read or write, and so the literacy requirement signaled that the U.S. was increasingly interested in limiting the migration of unskilled laborers in certain classes of individuals. The 1917 Immigration Act also greatly expanded the number of people who could be subject to deportation, upending previous laws that protected long-term residents and adding new items to the list of deportable offenses. Certain types of individuals could now be deported even if they had lived in the U.S. for many years. More on that in a bit. We are a nation of immigrants, but we are also a nation of laws. Today, we consider it pretty normal for the U.S. to control immigration and uphold quotas of how many people can receive what kind of visa, but its ability to do so is fairly new. There isn't anything the matter with the world civilization except that humanity is viewing it to a vision impaired in a cataclysmal war. That's Warren G. Harding. History generally remembers him as one of the worst presidents ever. His administration was beleaguered by corruption scandals and isn't remembered for having done a whole lot. But one thing Harding's administration did preside over was the creation of immigration quotas and the rise in concern regarding what came to be known as the illegal alien. Policies of the early 1920s set the stage for a great widening of the number of people who would be scrutinized by immigration authorities and potentially subject to detention or deportation. Harding was president when the Emergency Quota Act, or Immigration Act, of 1921 established for the first time numerical quotas limiting the entry of migrants. Harding died in office, and his vice president Kelvin Coolidge subsequently saw the passage of the 1924 Immigration Act, also called the Johnson-Reed Act. In fact, it was a bipartisan bill that faced relatively little opposition within the Congress. In 1924, the U.S. also established its Border Patrol, hiring almost 500 patrol inspectors. The Johnson-Reed Act was a watershed event. It made the quota system permanent. 
from millions of immigrants per year, the 1924 quota allowed for less than 200,000. That still sounds like a lot of people, but by way of example, the total number of immigration visas legally issued each year after the act was less than the number of Italians alone who had been entering the U.S. each year before the war. Our country is leading the world in the general... Coolidge was re-elected. His 1925 inauguration speech was the first to be broadcasted. You'll find versions online, but beware, they generally omit the section in which he boasted about the new quotas. Here's what he said. Under the helpful influences of restrictive immigration and a protective tariff, employment is plentiful, the rate of pay is high, and wage earners are in a state of contentment seldom if all seen. Under Coolidge, the U.S. experienced a period of seeming prosperity, remembered as the Roaring Twenties. But his administration also paved the way for the Great Depression, which began with the collapse of the financial system in 1929. During the peak of the Great Depression, industrial production was cut in half, the GDP dropped by almost a third, and unemployment rose above 20%. The causes for the Depression, its severity, and the slowness of the recovery are much debated. For the American public, however, one likely scapegoat that probably wasn't a major factor in actuality was immigration. Many Americans saw immigrants as competitors for scarce resources and jobs, and they were vulnerable targets easy to demonize. The public also blamed Herbert Hoover, of course. He was president at the time of the stock market crash. In his re-election bid, Hoover tried to play up his hardline stance on immigration. Here's what he said in a speech at the RNC. I favor rigidly restricted immigration. I have by executive direction in order to relieve us of added unemployment already reduced the inward movement to less than the outward movement and I shall adhere to that policy." Hoover was summarily defeated by FDR, but the institutions that grew under his administration lived on. I'd like to spend a few minutes here to reflect on the moment in American history represented by the Great Depression. By the 1930s, immigration policy was only one aspect of the U.S. government that had been transformed. During the period since the First World War, America had seen the emergence of modern state institutions that were much more involved in the daily lives of citizens. FDR's New Deal of the 30s was the most ambitious manifestation. But we shouldn't give the impression that this was the story of successive presidential administrations unilaterally intervening in people's lives. The U.S. was a representative democracy, and at every stage of its political transformation, there were opposing viewpoints and debates. America's town meeting of the air. I've been listening to recordings of an NBC radio program called America's Town Meeting of the Air to learn more about the social and political climate of the 1930s. Millions of people tuned into this discussion program, which featured different expert guests on special topics in each installment. During the 1930s, Americans were asking if the complex systems that were being created would work for them or against them, or more precisely, whom they would work for and at the expense of whom. Personal liberty and the government. Come to the old town hall and talk it over. I'll meet tonight. I'll meet.
In December 1935, America's town meeting of the air convened a panel on personal liberty and the modern state. Welcome America to historic town hall in New York City. The participants ran the gamut of the American political spectrum, even including Lawrence Dennis, one of the principal advocates of American fascism, whose fascinating life I'll return to in a later episode. I, I think that we have the choice today between expropriation of private property or communism and a formula of disciplined social control of our economic life, which most people call fascism. I think we either have... Roger Baldwin, a founding member of the American Civil Liberties Union, also participated in the debate, arguing for the creation of a, quote, worker's state in the U.S. Well, for the very simple reason that a worker's state would represent the interests of approximately, let us say, 90% of the people of a country. A state today represents the organization of business and of credit, and obviously represents the interests of a small minority. For now, I'll turn to an exchange between Lena Madison Phillips, who founded the International Federation of Business and Professional Women, and Henry Pratt Fairchild, a professor of sociology at New York University. Lena Madison Phillips was a champion of equality for women, and what we might call right to work, a popular idea amidst the unemployment of the Great Depression. Fairchild pushed her to go further. Well, if the state doesn't provide the jobs, mustn't it provide a good, reasonable standard of living without any imputation of charity or of deficiency on the part of the person that doesn't get the job? I, I don't think that's enough, but that's Well, I'm willing to have some more. What did you add? Well, I think that the, the, the state or the, the social order should provide a job for everybody who's qualified and able and willing and wants to work. And it's not enough either for the dole or even for insurance that he's entitled to work. Do you think work's a good thing in itself? Well, whether it's a good thing or not, I wouldn't think that I had very much liberty if I had to take uh, my income from the state or from the dole. But suppose everybody got the same general income. Every family, as a matter of course, you don't fuss because you can drive on roads without paying for them. You don't fuss because you get your mail carried at a very, very reasonable figure. Suppose everybody on exactly the same basis was provided with a good, reasonable standard of living to start with. And then they competed for additional things above that level. Would that be bad? Broadly speaking, Fairchild was a Marxist, but still mainstream. In most respects, he would have sat well among the liberal left of today. But his politics on immigration were very conservative. Fairchild believed that continued migration would be disruptive and destructive for the United States and its society. In a journal article from 1921, in a special issue on the problem of Japanese immigration, he argued that people move from places with land scarcity and bad land to places with low population density and good land. He referred to the quote, man-land ratio as the principle largely governing these flows. And he claimed the source and emergence of American democracy to a large extent was the generous man-land ratio. Fairchild believed that the U.S. must protect its man-land ratio and argued that it had no responsibility to alleviate the overpopulation of other countries, such as Japan. He concluded his essay saying, 
Has a nation whose population is expanding beyond its own resources to such an extent as to threaten its standard of living a right to look for an outlet in some other land? Or has the time come to deny the right of a nation which is suffering stringency because of an unrestrained growth of population to seek relief by encroaching on the territory of a more fortunate or more self-controlled country? Unless you are one of the first Americans, unless you are a native American, somebody somewhere in your past showed up from someplace else. And they didn't always have papers. Fairchild was far left on many issues. He wouldn't have sided with rabidly xenophobic fascists either. But in the 1920s, he had been just one of many people advocating the restriction of immigration. He is evidence of the ways in which, despite vigorous debate on other subjects, from right to left along the American political spectrum, anti-immigration sentiment was widespread. Whether or not all projected their general opposition to immigration onto the individuals we call immigrants. While some, especially those coming from immigrant groups, continued to assert the importance of a welcoming immigration policy and advocate on behalf of the rights of immigrants, they were the minority amidst a broad interwar anti-immigration consensus. And as a result, Americans continually elected officials who would implement policies to restrict immigration and enable the government to remove and exclude those deemed undesirable as new Americans. the United States open its doors to displaced persons now. Now let's turn to audio from another America's town meeting of the air. Kingdon and Rudolph Reimer hear both sides on Reimer. We can now admit 150,000 persons for permanent residence. There is no limit as to the number of people that can come here for temporary residence. Our laws are exceedingly liberal and we are most generous in our treatments of the alien. All nations are jockeying for a place in the sun, and if the Europeans could send us their derelicts of humanity to take, the, take off their hands, they would do so and praise our generosity. It is a matter of record that European governments granted pardons or withheld prosecution if the accused would migrate. Where to? USA, of course. That was Rudolf Reimer, a former immigration commissioner at Ellis Island. His statement embodied the attitude of American immigration authorities during the interwar period. Rigidly anti-immigration in sentiment, but continuing to extol the openness and magnanimity of American law. Reimer ran Ellis Island under FDR from 1934 to 1940, the main period covered in this podcast series. And he was well aware of the shaky reputation that U.S. immigration authorities were earning by the time of that recording in the 1940s. After an unfavorable profile of their operations in 1938, 
He complained to the New Yorker that he had been, quote, trying to sell Ellis Island to the world as a place where order and happiness prevail, not as the hellhole of America. Maybe not everyone equated order with happiness, but to be fair, Reimer had a messy job. Ellis Island had long since transformed from the gateway of liberty to become the locus of the coercive state's control of migrants as a center of detention and deportation. The introduction of the immigrant visa system had greatly reduced the role of Ellis Island as a place where people arrived and were inspected and registered as migrants, the familiar Ellis Island story. Most of that screening now took place remotely beforehand, so increasingly Ellis Island was the center of deportation rather than immigration. By the time of the Great Depression, the U.S. was tougher on immigration than it had ever been, not just limiting the number of people who could come in, but also developing the mechanisms to create the outward movement Herbert Hoover referred to earlier. Wilson, Harding, Coolidge, and Hoover all presided over the growth and maturation of what we'll refer to in this podcast as the American Deportation State which rose in stride with what historians refer to as the carceral state, the prison system and all its appendages. Like mass incarceration, deportation in many forms is normalized in the U.S. today. And given the astounding numbers of deportations and incarcerations taking place since the 1990s, we might tend to see it as an issue of the present. But the modern deportation state of today has its origins in the new laws, administrations, and practices created during the interwar era. In world historical terms, deportation is a very modern thing, but only about as modern as the modern state itself. There were two types of deportation going on. The first was point of entry deportation, i.e. people being turned away at the border. But post entry deportation was much more involved. It entailed removing people who were already residing within the U.S., sometimes for years, and the process of deporting such migrants could also stretch on for years. It required significant institutional coordination and continuity. There is a bunch written on the history of this form of deportation in the United States. My guide to this rich historiography has been Emily Pope Obita, a historian we'll be speaking with throughout this series. Her research has studied the rapid escalation of deportation during the 1920s. Deportation increasingly became a default punishment for and solution to a wide range of would-be social ills. You start to get a series of federal immigration laws that add all these new categories of excludable or deportable people. And it really shows a lot about the values of the nation if you look at them. It's everything from prostitutes and polygamists to imbeciles and idiots. I mean, these are the official categories to, you know, one of the most relevant ones is those likely to become a public charge. And this idea of policing poverty and policing dependency and policing the possibility of future dependency through removal is something that's really fundamental to how this system developed over time. What really does rise is um, the number of people who are being deported for visa infractions and for entry without um, inspection and and for being entering over quota. One of the other things that that expands vastly throughout this period is um, mental health deportations. In 1920, less than 2% of total deportations were for criteria of mental health. But but from what I've been able to tabulate, 
1926, it's nearly 10% of, of all deportations. Really? And then by the end of the decade, it's dropped back down to about 4%. But there's definitely something going on with that. Crime was one of the, the things that grew most strikingly. In 1921, there were only 51 individuals deported as criminals. By 1926, that was almost 800. By 1929, it was over 1,400. Wow. Um, so by the end of the decade, um, you've got it peaking at nearly 10% of overall removals for, for actual crimes. Many people who were deported were guilty of nothing more than having entered the country illegally or not having a proper immigration visa. But offenses for which people were deported included crimes of what they call moral turpitude. Yet not all these crimes of moral turpitude or deportable offenses would be recognized by us today as such. So you've got also kind of the blurring of these lines between sexual transgressions and crimes. Right. Ideas about immigration and improper, you know, non-normative sexuality started to, to be really prominent. And really, especially in terms of unmarried relationships. Um, it was really one of the biggest ways that immigrant women became targeted for, for deportation. A lot of the cases that I'm studying right now are of black women from the Caribbean who are often in, in kind of different forms of familiar relationships, which don't always involve marriage and, and sometimes involve different kinds of kinship structures and different kinds of child rearing structures. And these women are being um, deported on the basis of having engaged in immoral behaviors. Just as the number of deportable offenses grew, post-entry deportation was a practice that expanded rapidly over the course of the 20s. The numbers really just explode. They go from about 2,700 in 1920 to mm -hmm. over 16,600 in 1930. So that's a massive um, oh. increase over the course of the decade. And people really don't look at what's what's going on and, and the kind of slow and steady ways that that system is increasing. The modern deportation state was growing quietly, behind the scenes, one deportee at a time, to a volume of nearly 20,000 by the end of the Hoover administration in 1933. And so in this series, we'll be looking at the topic in exactly that way, one deportee at a time, in order to understand all of the complexities of the experience of deportation. Studying deportation involves what Emily Popobita refers to as nesting scales of space and authority. Deportation was used to create and enforce a certain vision of the nation and its boundaries, including in, in you know, unexpected spaces like deportations from spaces of American empire. At the local level, I look at how important local enforcement is to the actual mechanism of deportation. Um, at a period where there was still a very small immigration service workforce, all of this was incredibly contingent upon local cooperation and really local initiative from everyone from vigilantes to police forces mm. to medical institutions. Deportation entailed increased connection between different branches of the government. The modern deportation state created a kind of unprecedented level of centralized coordination between a variety of different institutions of the state, institutions that we think of as benevolent, like hospitals and, and asylums, mm. as well as ones that are more clearly carceral, like prisons and reformatories, and the ways that they were knit together all across the country to create these spaces um, of the deportation dragnet, basically. Mm -hmm. And deportation also entailed a massive logistical endeavor. One of the things that deportation does is it brings the process of boundary making into the interior of the country, into spaces that we don't think of as having anything to do with borders. And so having a centralized train system for doing that is actually really crucial to how that 
process grew over time. Hmm. You know, I'm, I'm really arguing that in the 1920s, as opposed to just an episodic sort of response to the, the First World War and, you know, the first Red Scare, that the deportation was actually becoming something much more mundane, but also therefore more dangerous. Yeah. This was becoming a really bureaucratic, centralized system for, for mass removal. You'll find a full-length interview with Emily Popobita on OttomanHistoryPodcast.com. As she's taught me, deportation came to permeate all the spaces and institutions of the United States during the 1920s. Through our conversations, I've been introduced to a whole world of literature on immigration, deportation, and race. And we'll be talking to lots more scholars in later episodes. But before we return to our Ottoman Americans, we need to address one more issue integral to this podcast and the history of deportation. Diplomacy, which has been recently examined in a book simply titled Deportation, the Origins of U.S. Policy by the scholar Tori Hester. As the 19th century developed, nations started creating bilateral immigrant removal policies. And what that meant was For example, when France wanted to remove an immigrant, they would just put, they would put a German on the train and send that person to Germany. And in the late 19th century, some European states started saying, we'll not accept these expelled immigrants without negotiations. So very quickly in the late 19th century, in order for one country to remove an immigrant, it required a bilateral process. The way in which deportation took place was changing, giving rise to our modern international regime governing the movements of people. Unilateral exclusion and deportation weren't really new practices unto themselves. But today, such unilateral measures are viewed as illegitimate, possibly violations of international law. Wholesale unilateral deportations and expulsions of entire groups might be described under the banner of ethnic cleansing, even genocide. Bilateral deportation, i.e. a deportation in which the receiving state consents, however, is very different. It occurs through the mutual understanding of two countries. One country decides to deport under its own laws, and the other country accepts this deportation and receives the deportee under its own laws. You'll find a complete interview with Tori Hester on the subject of deportation and diplomacy on our website. The topic is full of paradoxes and dark ironies and offers an overall picture in which governments of the world actually collude to move people around. Today, the deportation state and the criminal justice system have become intimately intertwined. Hester told me that immigration-related crimes are the leading cause of imprisonment in the federal prison system, as opposed to the state prison system. More people are in federal prison for trafficking themselves than for trafficking drugs. And needless to say, those immigration-related crimes are also what are getting people removed by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, ICE, by the hundreds of thousands each year. Though deportation comes in many forms, all of the cases investigated in this series will involve attempts to affect a legal, bilateral transfer of single individuals through a diplomatically involved process. Individuals facing deportation had legal recourse, and they could appeal the process. They could seek the protection of their home country's consulate, and so forth. And deportation was becoming more orderly. But that doesn't mean that removal was necessarily getting more humane, or that power was being exercised in a less arbitrary manner. 
And in fact, through the period of the Great Depression, we see the persistent overlap of both modes of deportation, the bilateral and the unilateral. Remember that outward flow Herbert Hoover bragged about before the RNC? Well, under his administration and after, Hispanics were removed from the United States on a mass scale in what is perhaps euphemistically referred to as Mexican repatriation. The heartbreaking story of mass repatriation during the 1930s is studied in the work of Francisco Balderrama and Raymond Rodriguez, entitled Decade of Betrayal. It shows how the current disputes surrounding undocumented immigrants are not an isolated or recent phenomenon. The U.S. has repeatedly opened and closed the door on neighbors to the South using different methods. I asked Tori Hester about this. Was that legal? And was this a bilateral or unilateral removal? In the 1930s, you have both formal deportations, which are carried out through a bilateral process. Most, however, were carried out in an extra legal manner. And so scholars look at this and they say, and they label this the Mexican repatriation, where, and, and some scholars debate the actual numbers, but we're looking at probably between half a million to a million Mexican and many Mexican Americans either left the U.S. or were forced to leave the U.S. Part of what was happening is deportation is a formal legal process. And the people that many people, for example, in in Los Angeles government thought should be deported could not actually deported because either they were U.S. citizens or they hadn't done anything wrong in U.S. law. So they carried out these, these campaigns where they, like city governments, or with state efforts, actually remove people. And this process called Mexican repatriation, where you see the large numbers of people, is facilitated by not just local governments, but the Mexican government is a part of this process, too. And so here you have scholarship by people like Francisco Valderrama or George Sanchez that really look at the ways in which the Mexican government is involved. So in the 1930s, you do have an uptick in the numbers of Mexicans deported, but they're only in the tens of thousands. It's the hundreds of thousands that are carried out kind of extra legally. It's really wrapped up in the racism of the 1930s. And also something that a scholar from UCLA, Devin Carbato, calls racial naturalizations, in which many white Americans read ethnic identity, like a Mexican heritage, as foreignness. And so many white policymakers in the 1930s, especially in places like Los Angeles, saw a person of Mexican heritage and using kind of racial, uh, racist assumptions, marked them as outsiders and try to exclude them from some of the programs that would help people endure the Great Depression, but also some of these policymakers scapegoated people of Mexican heritage as causes of its depression. I have by executive direction in order to relieve us of added unemployment already reduced the inward movement to less than the outward movement, and I shall adhere to that policy. Deportation required diplomacy, but there was nothing level about the diplomatic landscape. And as the case of Mexican repatriation illustrates, there was nothing even about immigration regulation in the U.S. during the interwar era. Today, many regard the visa system and immigration enforcement as a means of implementing a fair and controlled approach to immigration to ensure that people have access to a chance at the American dream, and that it happens in an orderly manner. But its origins are quite different. 
Fairness and control have always had a lot to do with race in the United States. And one of the important forces in the debates of the 1930s was eugenics. We sometimes think of eugenics as a perverse form of science involving intensely controlled breeding of populations. But when historians link immigration policy to eugenics, they're not referring to some sort of laboratory experiment. They're referring to how immigration restrictions and deportation aided in the policing of America's biological body politic. Immigration policy and deportation enabled the government to dictate who could become American and in turn, who would birth subsequent generations of Americans. Let's return to the 1924 Johnson-Reed Act that established the immigration quotas. These quotas were not at all based on a consideration of where demand for migration was most great. In fact, if they were in any sense, they were aimed precisely at blocking the groups who most wanted to come to the U.S. European Jews, Japanese, or other people from Eastern Europe, the Mediterranean, and the rest of Asia. Generally speaking, what the quotas aimed to accomplish was to limit migration almost exclusively to those deemed white. And the less white your country was perceived to be, the fewer migrants you were likely to receive under these quotas. While the conversations surrounding the drafting of the law all pointed to a desire to preserve the white Christian makeup of the U.S., technically, the law stated that the annual quotas would be pegged to 2% of the migrant population from a given country as of 1890 i.e. 34 years prior. Since most Southern European, Eastern European, and Middle Eastern migration had occurred in the interim, the date of 1890 was deliberately chosen to exclude such groups. In fact, the date in the 1921 emergency quotas had been 1910, so in the final permanent quotas, Congress very consciously pushed back the clock to make the law even more racially biased. Much like the recent and controversial travel ban on people from predominantly Muslim countries, the Johnson-Reed Act issued country-specific rules based on nationality. This technicality was a thin veil for the true agenda behind the quotas, which sent a simple message. America wants more white people and only white people. Naturally, Great Britain, Ireland, and Germany accounted for more than 80% of the spots. By contrast, a country like Italy, which as I said sent hundreds of thousands of migrants to the U.S. annually at its peak, got just a few thousand. The same was true for Poland, and Spain was allotted just over a hundred migrants. Between those three countries, you've already got more than half of my own ancestry, as well as the ancestors of many millions of Americans today. This podcast is concerned with the eastern half of the Mediterranean region where a flood of immigration was also suddenly limited to a trickle. Immigration from the Ottoman Empire and its former territories was rising very rapidly before the First World War, but had really only begun after 1890. So basically every country of the former Ottoman Empire was apportioned no more than 100 immigrant visas per year in the 1924 quotas. That's true for Greece, for Turkey, for Syria, for any of the countries that make up the modern Middle East. In suddenly implementing these quotas, the U.S. was separating families and excluding a lot of theoretical Americans. Ancestors, friends, neighbors, colleagues, and lovers who never came to be. We think of our country as a mix of people from all over, and in some sense it is. But the 1920s and 30s prompt us to turn this idea on its head and consider the America that didn't happen. The people from Eastern Europe, Southern Europe, and the Middle East who were restricted. 
What if Arab or Armenian migration had continued to rise instead of being stifled? What if no attempt had been made to restrict Jewish immigration? What if the U.S. had continued to allow in Japanese immigrants, who numbered almost 200,000 by 1924? Or go back further and consider the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, the first major law to bar an entire people from the United States. What if as many Chinese had come as Irish? The country would look entirely different, and our very conceptions of racial categories would have been completely altered by this experience. Certainly, the U.S. was not alone in any of this. Other nations were establishing strict immigration controls informed by racial understandings, especially similar settler states like Canada and Australia. And it's worth noting that the U.S. did not maintain immigration quotas for countries within North and South America. So current policy towards countries like Mexico is actually, in a way, much more restrictive. But make no mistake, the interwar period was one of the crucial periods in the history of popular racial prejudice in the U.S., the Ku Klux Klan made a comeback during the 1920s, expanding its purview to target various migrant groups, especially Jews and Catholics, in addition to descendants of freed slaves that they had always terrorized. As Linda Gordon's The Second Coming of the KKK shows, the group actually expanded its operations in the North, where the ideologies of white supremacy enjoyed rising popularity. In fact, the Klan held a massive rally with tens of thousands of Klansmen marching through the streets of Washington, D.C. in 1925, the year after the immigration quotas were passed into law. You can find footage of the rally online. The white-robed marchers assembled a cross formation to lead the massive procession through the center of Washington, D.C., with the Capitol building standing right in the background. During the interwar period, the segregation regime of Jim Crow in the South also became more entrenched, as the idea of separate but equal, introduced by the 1896 Plessy v. Ferguson Supreme Court ruling, became a lived reality that generations of people grew up with. While certain advocates of civil rights or labor movements crossed racial divisions in their fight to eliminate segregation and inequality, it was black political activists in both the North and the South who did most of the heavy lifting. Americans kept electing white supremacist or anti-immigrant representatives to Congress in sizable numbers. The policies and rhetoric of the time all seemed to indicate that the American dream was whites only. After all, at the end of the day, most of white America was concerned primarily with the issues of white America, even those who were not actively invested in the idea of making America white again. People from the former Ottoman Empire offer a window onto this complex history of race and immigration. Because while Ottomans were part of the American immigration story, their status as well as their capacity to belong or be considered white was constantly in question. As many scholars have noted, Ottoman migrants were seen as racially liminal, caught in between within the American imaginary. Sarah Gualtieri has studied the issue of race among Syrian migrants in her book between Arab and white, and in our series, we'll talk to her about how Syrians even fought court cases to be counted as white in the Jim Crow South. Through some other examples, we'll show how American racism actually in some cases caused Arab migrants to become invested in the idea of their own whiteness, 
not out of their own inherent racism per se, but because in many instances, whiteness was a prerequisite to being counted as a full citizen. In fact, Ottomans had faced restriction even during the liberal migration period before the First World War. Deidre Maloney recounts an interesting moment in the book National Insecurities. The Bureau of Immigration tried to bar migrants from the Ottoman Empire because polygamy was permissible under Islamic law as practiced there. The logic stated that Muslims, whether they practiced polygamy or not, and the number of men who had more than one wife in the Ottoman Empire was indeed a tiny percentage of the population, were tacitly polygamous due to their embrace of a religion that allowed for polygamy. This brief Muslim ban, if you will, was put down by the Department of State in response to the protestations of the Ottoman government with which the U.S. had economic and political ties. During the First World War, the Ottoman Empire allied with the Central Powers, Germany and the Austro-Hungarian Empire, and so the Ottomans were the enemies after the U.S. joined the war in 1917. The Central Powers were defeated in 1918, and Istanbul, the capital of the Ottoman Empire, was occupied. European states began carving up the empire for spheres of influence. In many regions, wars with occupying forces and neighboring countries raged. The Turkish national movement, based in Anatolia, fought the new Republic of Armenia in the east, the French occupation in the south, and invading Greek armies in the west. This resulted in the creation of the Republic of Turkey as we know it today. It was the sovereign successor state to the Ottoman Empire by 1923. With the Treaty of Lausanne that same year, the rest of the former Ottoman territories fell under the government of the League of Nations mandate system. France got Syria and Lebanon, Great Britain got Palestine, Transjordan, and Iraq, and Italy controlled the Dodecanese Islands. In percentage terms, the First World War took a greater toll in the Ottoman world than anywhere else in terms of civilian casualties, displacement, and overall suffering. The Lebanese had faced mass starvation. The Ottoman Armenians had been victims of a genocide consisting of mass deportation and massacres. Americans, especially Ottoman American immigrants, were alarmed by what was happening in the Ottoman Empire during the war and mobilized to create new humanitarian organizations to provide relief for civilians. But after the war, the U.S. government slammed the door in the faces of those most in need of a new place to call home. Consider, for example, that in 1914, nearly 9,000 Syrians came to the U.S. But under the 1924 quotas, Syria, Turkey, and the like were only allotted 100 visas each per year. The quota was just a little over 1% of the 1914 figure. So with so few slots available, how could families involved in a process of gradual migration stay connected? They could all go elsewhere, but because other countries were also making it harder to migrate, and because in many ways America was still the Mahjar, the quota system indirectly encouraged illicit migration on the part of people like Syrians. Peoples of the former Ottoman Empire were increasingly likely to become illegal aliens subject to scrutiny from law enforcement and therefore deportation. Another subject we'll study throughout this series is the ways in which migrants fought or subverted American immigration regulation. In some cases, this involves sneaking into the country or obtaining fraudulent travel documents. In other cases, it meant going to court and demanding the right to stay or drawing on the support 
of organizations that for various reasons came to the defense of vulnerable migrants. Every single person we will focus on in this series was ordered to be deported, but almost every single one fought back. And taken as a whole, those individual battles represented a force of resistance and change in the face of the increasingly powerful deportation machinery. I've been referring to the protagonists of this podcast as Ottoman Americans. In reality, there's no explicit hyphenated Ottoman American community or identity we can point to. Most groups continue to identify with their ethnic or religious communities. But Devin Nahr, a scholar of Sephardic studies at University of Washington, Seattle, has worked on the case of Ottoman Sephardic Jews who called themselves Turkinos and he had this to say about whether there was any value in the category of Ottoman American. I think it is a very intriguing concept, and I, I like it very much. When we think of the concept of the Turkino, I mean, that's what they were trying to say. That was the way that they were trying to represent their identity as being connected to the Ottoman Empire. And they even have some organizations, at least among the Ottoman-born Jews in America, they created organizations called, there was one like the Ottoman Sephardic American Club of New York. So they have that concept of Ottoman American built in there, and they received a representative of the first Turkish parliament, actually, when he came to Fuad Bey, when he came to America in 1923. And even after the Republic is claimed, this organization is still thinking of itself as Ottoman. From another angle, I think it's also helpful when we think about the relations between Ottoman-born migrants across communal lines. So again, from the case of Ottoman Jews, we find a lot of interactions between Ottoman Jews and Ottoman Muslims in New York and in other places, like Peabody, Massachusetts is a very unusual place where there were uh, there was a, a community of Ottoman Muslims and also of Ottoman Jews, and they had some you know, interactions and relied on each other for certain practices, like the Muslims relied on the Jews to provide kosher meat, which fulfilled the requirements of halal, for example. That was like an Ottoman enterprise. You see something also happening with, uh, with Greeks as well, Ottoman-born Greeks and Ottoman-born uh, Jews. Here in Seattle is another great case. The first Ottoman-born Jews, Ottoman Jews who come to Seattle, come following their Ottoman Greek friends. They are invited by their, their Greek friends. And when the Ottoman Jews come to Seattle, they associate and socialize not with the already established Ashkenazi European Jews. They're hanging out with the Greeks in the Greek cafes, which we could call, I think we could call them Ottoman American cafes of sorts, where a variety of different Ottoman people interact with each other. Now, those are good historical justifications for using the term Ottoman American in the cultural sense. But there's another good reason to speak of Ottoman Americans, and that's the issue of nationality. Because this is the period in which one's nationality began to matter. Nationality is simply the state of belonging to a particular country. Ultimately, Ottoman Americans were Ottoman Americans because however they thought of themselves, when it really came time to determine nationality, i.e. when it came time to deport, in many cases, Ottoman was the only nationality they could turn to. So long as you were born in the Ottoman Empire, you might be Ottoman no matter how many decades you had spent elsewhere or how many years had passed since the collapse of the empire. Deportation was becoming a bilateral process, and for Ottoman-born migrants, it wasn't always clear who the diplomatic partner involved in carrying out the deportation should be. 
This series concerns itself primarily with the messiest cases, ones in which the U.S. strived the hardest to make deportation happen. Because for those who had passports and clearly identifiable nationalities, deportation involved little more than a quick hearing at Ellis Island and a steamship ticket. But if nationality wasn't clear, and if those people did not have documents, a hearing lasting a few minutes that resulted in a deportation order could lead to a years-long process in which American officials sought to find a home for their undesirables, with these deportees, sometimes in turn, fighting long legal battles for the right to stay. And these are really interesting cases. Rather than a mere story of American nativism, racism, and insularity, they reveal a more complex drama. Police, judges, prosecutors, lawmakers, diplomats, and next-door neighbors become arbiters of human quality and worth, while migrants and their families, communities, lawyers, and employers became the characters of a morality play in which productivity, intelligence, gender norms, lifestyle, piteousness, acculturation, religion, and race all served as criteria in a final judgment regarding the right to remain and be counted as a good American. In each of the episodes that follow, you'll be hearing the story of a single migrant, and through that migrant's brush with a deportation state, we will not only study how Ottoman immigrants were part of the making of the United States, but also examine the post-Ottoman history of the Middle East, the global history of deportation, and the transformation of international law. This is a podcast-first research project, meaning the primary source material for these podcasts will be my own research from the U.S. National Archives and Records Administration. In addition, I've used valuable internet resources to reconstruct these stories. Digital collections at research libraries such as the Library of Congress, popular genealogy research sites like Ancestry.com, newspaper archives, and even Facebook have helped not only to track the fates of the migrants I've studied, but also in a few cases to locate their descendants. Alongside these investigative research methods, I've drawn on a wealth of scholarship, all of which is cited in the bibliographies for each podcast, and some of which is featured in the form of in-person and remote interviews recorded with experts in the field. In the first half of this series, I'm going to explore the stories of very ordinary migrants, all of whom were ordered to be deported for no other crime than being counted as illegal aliens. They were people most of us would otherwise understand as good Americans. Hassan, the hardworking son of legal immigrants, Leon, the struggling husband and father of legal immigrants, Lefki, the refugee mother of an American-born girl, Toma, Sarkis, and a bunch of others we should see essentially as people with nowhere to go who only wanted to be with their families. We'll also look at the stories of Akif and Abram, two migrants whose only crime was a mental health condition. These figures will test the limits of the deportation state's cruelty, as well as its diplomatic capacity to deport. But in the second half of the series, I'm going to reset the discussion. We're going to interrogate the very notion of a good American and ask why society projects its moral anxieties onto migrants. The cases in the latter half of the series will be more complicated, more ambivalent, as we study the deportation of individuals guilty of crimes big and small. This project is quite unlike anything I've done before, but I'm not starting from scratch. At Ottoman History Podcast, we've gained experience making scholarly research publicly available for over seven years since 2011. 
We've featured hundreds of scholars on the program, and we continually strive to produce a new kind of scholarship that contains all of the research rigor of an academic publication with all of the accessibility of the podcast medium. If you'd like to support our work, there are two really easy things you can do. The first is simply to share it as widely as you can. It's all publicly available, and our podcasts are always published under a non-commercial, attribution, share-alike, Creative Commons license. What that means is you can pretty much do anything you want with them as long as you give us credit and don't try to make any money off of them. Which brings us to the other thing you can do. For the first time ever, you can support the Ottoman History Podcast through a donation to our Patreon account. You can give a dollar just to say thanks, or you can give more and be acknowledged on the air as a patron of our work. Every little bit helps, and every little bit will be used to fund the production of this series and the wider efforts of Ottoman History Podcast. Nothing for profit. Ottoman History Podcast is committed to remaining non-commercial and as independent and free of affiliation as we possibly can. That's all for this introductory episode. Visit the Deporting Ottoman Americans page on ottomanhistorypodcast.com for further reading and bonus interviews with Emily Popobita and Tori Hester. And join us soon in episode two of the Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast. We'll learn about Hassan, a Muslim migrant from modern-day Lebanon, attempting to stay in the U.S. and remain connected to his family in South Dakota. Through his story, we'll uncover the incredible history of the Syrian-American community and consider what it meant to be Syrian in Sioux Falls during the 1930s. Stay tuned. The Deporting Ottoman Americans podcast is an Ottoman history podcast production. Our chief consultant on this series is Emily Pope Obida. Our script editor for this episode is Sam Dolby. This episode featured additional recordings with Tori Hester and Devin Nahr. Research, narration, audio editing, and all errors are by me, Chris Grayton. You heard lots of audio elements in this podcast. The speeches of FDR and Hoover are available on archive.org. So are the episodes of America's Town Hall Meeting, that quote we kept replaying by Martin Diaz Jr. appears in the documentary, The Tramp and the Dictator. Thanks to Victor Toth for putting it up on YouTube, as well as all the YouTube users who have put up other miscellaneous stuff that's appeared in this episode. Digitized shellac and vinyl records employed as the music in this podcast came from Library of Congress, Archive.org, and CDBPDX.com. The harp and flute instrumentals you heard were by Sato Mughalian and Alyssa Reet. The piano themes, the intro montage music, other music, and miscellaneous elements, along with what you're hearing right now, were made by yours truly. For more conversations, a bibliography, and a complete list of sources for audio elements, check the link contained within this episode on SoundCloud or visit ottomanhistorypodcast.com. 